Subscribe to the Virgin Podcast at iTunes or via RSS. You're listening to the Virgin Podcast with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to the Virgin Podcast with me, Dominic Frisby. And it's my pleasure today to welcome to the programme communicator, writer and strategist, Alistair Campbell. Alistair's best known as Tony Blair's extremely loyal director of communications and strategy. He's also the author of, I think this number's right, 11 books? 11 books. And we're here today to talk about his most recent, Winners and How They Succeed. How do sports stars excel, entrepreneurs thrive or individuals achieve their ambition? Is their ability to win innate or is the winning mindset something we can all develop? Drawing on the wisdom of an astonishing array of talented people from sports stars and managers, prime ministers, presidents and tycoons, with a compelling mixture of anecdote, interview and actual method, Alistair examines how winners tick And he sets out a blueprint for winning that, fortunately, we can all follow. So, firstly, Alistair, welcome to the show. Thank Uh, you. Terrific book. I absolutely loved it. I think I said to you before the programme started, I wasn't expecting to like it, and I did. Um, Why why, why why were you not expecting to like it? Ah, why? I don't know. (laughs) Some kind of innate prejudice. Prejudice and no other reason. I just Against me or against this sort of book? Uh, a, a little bit of both. Is that fair enough to say? That? A little bit of both. I, I mean, I really don't. I, I let's let's leave that aside. Let's not delve into those depths. You've already already exposed a, a, a weak point in my in my armour. Um, let's just let's ta- start by talking about winning. With you know, why don't we start with a kind of definition of winning? I think by winning you kind of mean being successful, don't you? Um. I think, I mean, the book starts with you You have to define winning because it's not always straightforward. If you take something like last year's football season in, in England, Manchester City lost yeah. over the season. Um, they, You take Crystal Palace after Alan Pardew took over, they won big time over the season, even though they ended up winning fewer matches. So you can define winning. I, I, I talk about people's personal experience as well. When I did a marathon in 2003, I went, this is how ridiculous I am, I went to see Sebastian Coe and Brendan Foster and said, what would a win mean for somebody like me? And they basically said, sub four hours. And that's why I felt I'd won, even though there were tens of thousands of people, including, you know, people dressed up in funny clothes ahead of me. So you can define winning. But what I've I've looked at in the book are people that I think we'd all accept were kind of hyper-successful. Yeah. And often they are in sport. I actually found the most winning, winning mindsets were in sport. Yeah. Much more than politics, alas. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so I suppose it is about how very successful people uh, stand out from merely successful people. Just just coming back to your first definition, I mean, so one definition or one secret of winning could be low expectation or low targets. No, I don't think so, because then I think I think they have to be ambitious targets. Yeah. So back to the Crystal Palace analogy, going from bottom of the table to just below mid-table, that was ambitious. Yeah. Uh, I think they have to be ambitious. I think if you just lapse into a kind of comfort zone and say, well, I'll, I'll aim low, and then if I hit low, I'm a winner, I don't really buy that. I think you've got to stretch yourself. Fair enough. 
Um, the now this is the the kind of thing that gripped me straight away was this thing of OST mm. objective strategy and tactics. Why don't we talk about this, particularly strategy? Well, I think most organisations and a lot of individuals who are, you know, trying to do big things. I think they confuse these three things all the time. And so I say right at the start of the book, I think you have to be clear about your objective. What are you trying to achieve? The hard bit is the strategy. That is that is the how. And then the tactics, I think you should only think about the tactics once you've got those two things worked out very, very clearly. So I talk about, for example, our campaigns, working with new labour, objective, win. Strategy, new labour. Tactics, everything that flowed from that. Steve Jobs goes back to Apple after first time around. Strategy, the, the objective at the time was survival. It wasn't to become the biggest industrial modern behemoth. Yeah. It was to survive. Objective survival, strategy simplification. Let, we're just complicating things. Let's just simplify everything. I think that if I look at a lot of people in politics and in business... I'll come on to sport in a minute because I think it's a little bit different. But I think too many people confuse objective and strategy and they confuse strategy and tactics. Mm. They're, very, they're part of the same thing, but they're different and you have to think about them differently. And I think for, for sport, one of my favourite chapters in the whole book was uh, what I've done in the book, as, you've, as you know, is, is write about things in general uh, through a mixture of experience and observation and lots of different interviews and a bit of history and whatever, and then have a profile of somebody that I think is most interesting on that subject. Yeah. So Mourinho, Jose Mourinho, the Chelsea manager, he is my strategy person. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons, actually, we argue about what strategy means in our different worlds. To him, his... The most important thing for him in a match, and he has to win match after match after match to win titles, is a, what he calls a tactical model. He builds a tactical model for every game. Strategy, he says, is when it's not working and he makes a change. Now, that's very different to politics, yeah. or I think, or business, where, or chess, Gary Kasparov in the book, and he's without doubt one of the biggest brains I've ever come across, and he's, he's very clear, you do not change your strategy unless the fundamentals change. I think it's maybe a bit different in something like football. Um, but yeah, OST is uh, absolutely fundamental. And it's been really interesting to me since the book came out. I mean, yesterday, for example, I had a, uh, on Twitter a message from Martin Rooney, the athlete. And he just tweeted a picture of himself reading the book and he said, loving this book, so simple, why'd I never thought of it? OST for race, for racing. You know, yeah. obje objective might be to win, might be to qualify, then work out the strategy, only then do the tactics. So, and it's been really interesting to me how sport and business is where I've had the the biggest and the best feedback since the book came out. Yeah. You know where you're going to get a big response is artist management. Okay. The management of, like, comedians and actors and this Why? kind of thing. Because a lot of people go into those businesses with great ideals and it's not quite, you know, I want to star in a Hollywood film or I want to be selling out Wembley Arena or whatever that kind of goal is. And they don't quite know how they're going to go there. And they think, well, if I go and do a few gigs on the comedy circuit or I go to drama school right. and then I try and get a part in... You see, on that, for me, the objective would be become a really successful comedian yeah. or the manager thereof. The strategy 
would be the sort of comedy you do, and the tactics would be to go in the comedy store circuit before you get to the O2. Yeah, but it, it, th that breaks it down beautifully. Most artists don't do that. Mm. Uh, Eddie Izzard is very famously uh, meticulous about planning everything ahead, and I bet well, you he does Eddie's, something similar. Eddie's a friend of mine. Oh, and, OK. Uh, I was, he was actually in my kitchen when he announced he was going to do those ridiculous series of marathons. OK. Uh, and I said, Eddie, you can't do this. It's impossible. You know, if you've never done one before, you can't just turn out and run a marathon every day. And he said, no, but I can because that's what I've decided. But so that was a tactical implementation of a strategy that he set himself. Yeah. I'm not sure, I don't know if he thought like that. Well, I know instinctively he thinks like that. Mm -hmm. So, so like, and it's similarly when the, the stuff where he goes abroad and he sort of <laughs> learns a foreign language. Objective, be a global comic, yeah. successful comic figure. Strategy, uh, what would he, how would I define Eddie's strategy? I think it would be being this kind of multilingual, uh, he's got the obvious kind of you know the cross-dressing stuff and all that. But I think it's this sort of you know is 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 objective, objective and strategy aligned because they're both as this sort of global thing, mm -hmm. and then a tactic is to learn German and go and do it in Germany. Yeah, <laughs> do it brilliantly. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we do? Let's break just on this same subject of object strategy uh, and tactics. You 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 broke it quite. Uh, there was a nice explanation using a diet, the simple thing of yeah. a diet. Yeah. And that that might. Uh... Objective: lose weight. Yeah. Strategy: diet and exercise. Tactics: um, stairs, not lift. Picture of old self on fridge. Um, record everything you eat. Yeah. There you go. Simple. And that kind of, that defines it. But you, as you say in the book, it's amazing how few people think in terms of strategy. Um, careers advisors are other people who should, uh, should yeah. recommend that book. So let's talk on, um, let's talk further onto the subject of teams. Mm -hmm. And so many successful people, in fact, almost every successful person behind that successful person is not only an amazing wife, but... Uh, or husband. Or husband, there you go. Thank you. Uh, no, I was I was alluding to the famous quote, yeah, yeah, yeah. but also the a team. Yeah. And um, so, why don't we talk about the importance of teams? Well, I start the book with what I call the first three words. Once I get through the sort of preamble, a strategy is God. Yeah. But then I talk about the Holy Trinity, which I think are strategy, leadership, and teamship. You can be technically a good leader, i.e. somebody who knows how to make decisions, knows how to motivate people, but if you don't have the right strategy, you've got no chance. I don't think there's... I can't think of any great leader, including golfers, including tennis players, including swimmers, who don't have a good team behind them, uh, whether that's a coach, whether it's a psychologist, whatever it might be. So I think you have to be able to pick the right people for the right reasons and build them into something greater than the sum of the parts. And again, politics is uniquely bad at this. Mm. I've just been watching this extraordinary um, television series in Australia about the Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard yeah. psychodrama is the only way to put it. <laughs> and it is awful. It is absolutely awful. Catastrophic. It makes, I did a piece for the Guardian Australia website and I said it makes the whole Tony Blair, Gordon Brown thing look like a, you know, best of buddies for life. 
And I think there is something, and I don't, I don't know whether this is right, but the theory I've sort of come to, having spent all this time talking to different people in different walks of life, is that in sport, an individual sportsman or woman, their talent is spotted very young. Yeah. From five, six, seven, into the teens, whatever it might be. And you're still young enough to be, um, to have parents and coaches and you you, you can be moulded, if you like. And what's more, in sport, the minute you walk onto a football field or a cricket field, you know it's about the team, even if you're very individualistic. In business, I think business is much more hierarchical than either sport or politics. And the hierarchy lends a, a discipline. In politics... Even if somebody is motivated to go into a political career because they have they share the values of a party or they go into a cause or a campaign, it's an incredibly individualistic decision to make. It is about you. It's something you're deciding to do for the rest of your life, possibly. It's a massive individual decision. And I think most people in politics never, ever get over that. And the other thing about most people in politics, even if you and I could look at them and decide in... 20 seconds that they could never possibly be prime minister or president there's a little part of them that thinks that they could and it's all about the psychology of it but i honestly think i mean is that a systemic i mean is there because politics seems to have kind of almost always been like that everywhere is that kind of is there some kind of systemic structural failure that brings the worst out of people i don't know i really don't know but if you look at the greats in history I write about Abraham Lincoln in the yeah. book as you know, one, one of my political heroes. And he famously built an extraordinary team out of his main rivals. Mm. He did, that was a deliberate decision. Obama o- did something similar. Obama did something yeah. very similar with Hillary. You know, beats Hillary, brings her in, kept Robert Gates at the Pentagon. It was a similar approach. Um, we had this... I mean, I honestly do believe that New Labour, if we had held together as a team. Mm. I think we had good leadership. I think we had very, I think we were good at strategy most of the time. We fell apart on teamship. When so, was that? Kind of 2005? Around about then? Well, I'd, I mean, being brutally frank, it kind of started in 1994. In the, the were, falling apart? Not the falling apart, but the, but the seeds of the problems. OK. They were actually born in the fact that Tony became leader and Gordon didn't. That started it, I guess. But then we were able to to build a team out of some pretty extraordinary different sorts of talents. But I'd say the falling apart probably started to begin probably into our third term, maybe before that, maybe yeah. in our second term. Um, jealousy, and ultimately, jealousy is a problem, isn't it? It definitely is, but you see, you get jealousies in sport. I mean, you know, Manchester United, the team that won the, uh, won the treble, they had players that didn't speak to each other, mm. but they passed the ball to each other. Yeah. Um, Sheringham and Cole. Yeah. So that that you, it's possible. There's a wonderful quote in the book from Ben Ainsley, the sailor. And he talks about this thing about the team. And f- famously, he, he probably the greatest turnaround in modern sporting history, America's Cup, he's asked to go and turn around a team that's losing 8-1 and it wins 9-8. Yeah, I mean, Absolutely that was amazing. incredible. And I said, I said to him, did the team have to like each other? He said, no, they don't have to like each other, they have to respect each other, and they have to know what their role is. And I didn't know in sailing, there's only two people that are allowed to speak. Yeah. Um, so that, that obviously means that in terms of the power structure, it's obvious. 
But then you've got to be able to lead. If you have a leader that the members of the team are not seeing as the leader, that becomes a real problem. Yeah, and in politics, over time, you know, somebody will happily play number two or number three, and maybe this is what happened with Gordon Brown and Tony Blair. Yeah. But he's, a, he's only prepared to do that for so long, and then envy and resentment and all those kind of negative emotions creep in where that person but wants I, more. But I, I don't think they should. And, you see, I am a team player, and I think it's partly because I do love sport so much. I'm not saying I'm not ambitious and I don't have an ego, I do. But I do believe that the greatest things are achieved by teams. Yeah. Um, and I guess I was. I mean, I was the person who was always trying to keep things open with Gordon and because I knew that he was important. And unless Tony was going to get rid of him, he was a fundamental part of the team. Yeah. And we had to get on with that. Um, at, what, at what point did they kind of stop speaking? Uh, I mean, they spoke, but I mean, I think where, where it stopped being remotely productive was probably two thousand and one on. Blimey! And so then quite early. Yeah, but then, but then, it was kind of it was it was up and down. It was up and yeah. down, and there were periods when it went well. But here's the other thing about special talent. There's a there's a section in the book about special talent and how you manage special talent. And Tony himself has said that you know if Gordon, Gordon was brilliant and impossible. Mm. If he'd just been impossible. Easy, you get rid of him. Yeah. If he'd just been brilliant, absolutely fantastic. But when you're both, yeah, you've got this quandary the whole time, and you can see that with the management of special talent in in football yeah. and in other sports. Look at these. I mean, talking to Mourinho about uh, and Ferguson and and other top managers about how they deal with these guys who are in their early twenties, multi-millionaire global brands. Mm. And Alex Ferguson told me an interesting story about, so for example, when he, he sort of knew that he was going to get Ronaldo, he's probably going to get some of his best years, but he would one day want to go to Spain. He knew that. And he wanted to keep him as long as possible. And it coincided with a period where they were redesigning the training ground. And he basically redesigned it, partly in mind having, how do I make Cristiano like what's here even more? And he reckons that helped to keep him for another year. Okay. So that's a tactic. Yeah. Objective: keep Ronaldo as long as you can. Strategy: adapt the replanning of the training ground, which is an extraordinary place, by the way. It was really is sort of phenomenal setup. But make Ronaldo think. Yeah. You know, Telling him he's ba- special. It's his baby. He is special. Yeah. I see. Mourinho is very interesting on this whole special talent thing. He says you can't treat them. I say I asked him if he had individual strategies for every player. And he said, well, you can't treat them all the same, but they can't think that they're any better than everybody else. Not least because one of them might break his leg and they're out for yeah, yeah. for nine months. Um, he says that they have very, very strict rules. You know, if, if it says on the on the calling sheet for a match, the team's, the bus is leaving the hotel at 8 a.m. and you're not on that bus, it goes. And that includes whether he's late or Terry's late or Hazard's late. Mm. And as a result of that, they're not late. There was a very interesting um, section in the book where you kind of analysed the Tories under David Cameron, the, the, the coalition government, and you kind of said that election in 2008 was there for the 2010. taking. 2010. Uh, sorry, 2010, I beg your pardon. That election in 2010 was there for the taking, mm. and the reason we ended up with a coalition was Cameron's lack of strategy. Um, would you talk about that for a moment? I've actually got a judgment to make about this because here we are with the hardback, where I basically am defining Cameron as a loser. Yeah. And the paperback. I, I, I didn't think you'd define him as a loser, actually. You don't. That's no, interesting. How oh, good. No. 
Because that's I just thought, I thought you analysed... Uh, I just thought you... Because um, I think most people like Cameron, but his kind of brand of Pollux... Yeah, I do. Ooh. Maybe I read different... Uh, I have a different Twitter feed to you. Yeah. But he always comes out... For example, in the last election, he did much... In all the kind of leadership ratings, he did much better mm. than Miliband. He's much more... Yeah, but leadership's not about likability. Uh, OK, OK, so I've used the wrong word. I think people regard him as a much better potential leader than Miliband is. Yeah. But... Um, and he has the kind of gate of yeah, somebody definitely. who is a prime well, no, minister. I mean, what, what I've said about... It's interesting you say that, because I, I sort of think I do slightly define him as a loser, and, of course, now he's won an election... And when I do the paperback, do I have to sort of... I've obviously got to acknowledge the fact that he did win the election yeah. in 2015. Uh, and I can come on to talk about that if you like. But I think in 2010, he did endlessly confuse strategy and tactics. Mm. It wasn't clear what he was trying to say. No. Big society, greenest government ever, um, heir to Blair, all these different labels that were sort of put out there about him. And the constant U-turns. Constantly. And he's still done that. Mm. But I think that... They were more strategic in 2015. Uh, I think a lot of this is down to George Osborne. They they put everything into these twin buckets, if you like, or pillars of strategy, economy and leadership. And I'm afraid this is why I think ultimately we lost the election rather than they won it, because they didn't expect a majority. I don't think they thought they deserved a majority. But we Even played. then, it's not that big a majority. No, it's they? not, but yeah. they got a majority when they didn't expect it. And I think they did pour everything into economy and leadership, and we helped them. Mm. We helped them on the economy by not fighting back on our record. Uh, so that this idea that Labour caused the crash and it's all about Labour overspending, when most of that was to bail out the banks. Um, and, of course, on leadership, as you say, um, and the one thing I've always said about Cameron, he kind of looks and sounds the part, even though I don't think he's very good at the job. And Ed Miliband was always way behind on that. And, of course, the other thing I write about in the book, which I think is really relevant to politics and to business, uh, is this whole thing about data and confirmation bias, where I was at meetings in the last election campaign where somebody would come in and say, oh, it's a good poll out tomorrow, you know, Ed's ratings are up seven after the first TV debate. And you say, OK, but what's the gap? (laughs) You know, that's the... and, And so what people look for in data is confirmation bias. Mm. Are we doing okay? We're actually doing okay, and of course that fueled the whole sense that you know Labour might actually win. Mm. When if you actually really uh, analysed it from a strategic perspective, who had the stronger strategy—a strategy which was winning on economy and leadership, or a strategy which was ro- rooted mainly in inequality, but couldn't win that argument unless you could win on the economy and leadership as well? Yeah, you. I think coming back to Cameron, they the the kind of things that Cameron stands for, they're getting slightly clearer. But I I think there's this kind of fear in politics of... Because there's this kind of desperation to be liked and this desperation for votes and not to be pinned down by the media on any particular issue, that this kind of strong conviction politician, if their convictions are too extreme in any particular direction, they don't get elected. So you tend to get these kind of moderate guys that will back down on this and they'll pander a bit on that. And nobody, you don't get the kind of Thatcherite kind of, this is what I am, this is what I stand for, you're wrong. And reading your book, I always thought Tony Blair was a bit like that, but reading your book, it came to be apparent, actually, he wasn't. No, I think Tony is definitely somebody who has... I mean, he's a moderate left-wing guy, if that makes sense. He's, he's, he's a he's progressive... So centre-left social democrat, yeah, but who believes in big things and believes in the power of politics to do big things, 
Um, and I think was... I mean, I think one of the reasons we're so disappointed that the Conservatives are back and are doing some of the things that they're doing and that we let them get back in is that actually, whereas Margaret Thatcher, in a sense, did sort of set the agenda for politics for some considerable time and continues to have this big hold over the Conservative Party, because um, the Labour Party post-Tony started to sort of move away from him, in terms of his politics, I think we've ended up in a position much weaker than we should be. Um, and that's that's sad at a personal level, but I also think it's bad politics. Mm. To win an election, the, the <coughs> Labour Party needs... It's not going to win with... It, I, I call it extreme, but I don't mean... Ex, it's got to win it from the centre. It can't win it from the left. Would you agree with that? Or do, I, you, think, you, you, do you think you can win an election by being, um, you know... I want to say quite... I'm looking at a kind of scale, of a pH scale of left-wing and... Yeah, but I think it, you, you certainly have to... You have to remember that Britain is a country which is interested in politics, but where most people are not intensely political. And I think there's always a danger in politics that you, you think the, the public are in the same bubble as you are. Um, I think we... Look, I'll give you an example... And this goes back to my point about strategy. So in 1997, one of two of our big policies that were popular, mm. being the first government to bring in a minimum wage and a one-off one windfall tax on the excess profits of the privatised utilities, OK? They are both what you would call left-wing policies. Yeah. The equivalent in 2015 would have been Ed saying, ban zero as contracts and we're going to freeze energy prices. They would be the kind of equivalent, yeah. rough equivalent. But we were also saying new Labour is about understanding for all the beliefs you have in a strong society, you're not going to be able to deliver them unless you have a strong economy, and that means you've got to support enterprise. Therefore, we're not just going to whack your taxes up. So you have to have... It's not, I don't see this necessarily as left and right, but you have to be able to win an argument on the economy and win an argument about what sort of society you want. And you have to understand the two are linked. And I'm afraid that I think in the last election we were too much about, rightly, talking about inequality. I believe that as deeply as anybody. Yeah. But not persuading those people who aren't in our bubble. And I'll give you a very, very good instance of where this came home to me. I was out canvassing in the north of England, knock on a door, and people go, ooh. And then you start talking to them, they tell you what they think about everything. And I asked her how she was voting. She said, well, actually, I've always voted for you, but I'm, I'm not. This time I said, "Why?" She said, "Well, I'm not sure about, not sure about your leader, and I don't like this mansion tax thing." And I looked at the house, and I said, "Look, I don't know what's your house worth. About three hundred and fifty, three hundred and seventy-five thousand. She said, "Probably." I said, "Only fake houses in two over two million. It's it's, it's going to be London mainly." She said, "Yeah, but I want my kids to live in a house like that." <laughs> and that was like, a, and this is the point about. Aspiration. It's like yeah. it's like the thing about the top rate of tax. When you when you look at the the polling on the top rate of tax, it's not. I mean, the rich, the top, 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 rich, really rich people, they don't really care. Of course, they got their lawyers and their accountants, and they'll fiddle anyway. They don't the, make their money from the income people, anyway. They make their asset it's the people, asset appreciation. It's the people, yeah, just below the top rate, yeah, who feel strongly about it. Yeah, that's because the well, the the, the very wealthy rely on. Asset appreciation rather than income. 
uh, income's actually one of the few ways that you can close the wealth gap yeah. by working your way up. Um, that is a huge subject, which I would love to talk to you <laughs> on another day. Winners, 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 winners. Right. The mindset, the importance of having the mindset. And I want to talk particularly about visualisation. Yeah. Does well, it work? I think it doesn't. <clears throat> I mean, I write, I, I, one of my rules of life is that I tell somebody every single day that when I was 49, I played with Diego Maradona at Old Trafford in front of 72,000 people. <laughs> I do that every single day. And he was the guy who turned me on to this old visualisation yeah. thing. Because before the game, I had this ridiculous sort of, uh, almost an hour, just me and him kicking a ball about Old Trafford on the morning of the match because I couldn't sleep and he had jet lag. And... Um, and we were doing these exercises, and then at the end of one of them, after he banged, after he whacked the ball into an empty net, he then ran round the stadium celebrating on his own, and really celebrating like he'd won a World yeah. Cup final. And and he said to me afterwards, it was he about, wasn't on on, his, on, a, on one he of wasn't his, on anything. No, yeah. no, he, he, he was. He said it was about visualization, visualize victory. And since then, I've I've used visualization a lot. Yeah, and I've got this guy that who's in the book and, and who I, do, I work with now. Whenever I'm feeling kind of pressured and I'm stressed, and you know life's a bit difficult, a guy called Andy McCann who he works with rugby players, with athletes, with brain surgeons, with military. Um, he, he's a he's a great guy, but he's he's somebody who just gives you these little techniques that mm. that do work um, if you let them work. So, for example, this isn't from him, but a guy when I was working with the British Lions in uh, British and Irish Lions in New Zealand, and one of the All Blacks guys told me that if ever you see the the, the All Blacks on the pitch, either looking up at the stadium roof, and or wiping their right eyebrow, just mm. rubbing their finger across their eyebrow, you might think they're just wiping sweat off their brow, but actually it's one of their it's one of their agreed what they call centering techniques. Where if they're slightly losing the plot mentally, if they're if they're losing their concentration, if they feel that there's something they just need to set, settle themselves down, they just do that. And I've got a couple of things like that that I do now. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes I mean, this is perfectly gentle and relaxed and and what have you. But sometimes if you do an interview that's you know live on television, really difficult questions, really tough. And I have this technique now when I feel that the interviewer is kind of getting under my skin and I'm slightly worried I might lose my rag and whatever. Yeah. Um, I just do this thing where I rub my thumb and my forefingers together. Like okay. That, and I start smiling. Don't ask me why, but I do. And that's something that was taught to me by this guy who also has, has given me these tips about visualisation. So that, for example, if you're going into something difficult, I write in the, in the book about the Iraq inquiry, which is pretty stressful... You know, we sat down for an hour or two, a few days before, and then we, we visualised all the things that could go wrong. You know, from being assassinated on the way in, mm. <laughs> just to, 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 to saying something stupid and how you recover. Or from, you know, sometimes you might be talking to somebody, like it happened to Natalie Bennett, you know, yeah. the famous brain freeze in the, in, the LBC in, in, in the LBC interview. Well... That happens to people where you, your mind has just suddenly gone off somewhere else. What do you do if you're doing that in a live, televised, public inquiry on something as important as the Iraq war? How do you deal with that? So we talked through all those things. And partly as a result of that, none of it happened. Yeah. You know, Anthony Hopkins was a big visualiser. You know, was he it? had a period as an alcoholic where his career yeah. was going nowhere, and then yeah. a few years later he got his Silence of the Lambs and his career took off. Other one, Michael McIntyre. 
Okay. When he he went through a period of not having any success, and he used to drive over the Hammersmith flyover, mm. and he would where you see the the Hammersmith Apollo there, and he would imagine his name in big lights. Uh, above the Hammersmith Apollo, and of course, live at the Apollo was the the TV series that made him. Yeah, but for but you, I you, too you... have driven over Hammersmith Apollo and imagined my name Dominic Frisbee above the Hammersmith Apollo, and no such thing has happened. So maybe but it's one really, of these. No, but wait a minute. Have you really imagined it? Uh, and have you really thought it might happen? And have you then worked out what you, the key to visualization is? What is working out what you need to do then to make it happen? So it's slightly back to objective and strategy intelligence. Mm. Otherwise, it's just a fantasy. Yeah. And we can all have fantasies. I mean, that was what was ridiculous about playing with Maradona. My fantasy was to be a footballer, but I wasn't good enough. So that was never serious. Yeah. But I think where visualisation becomes serious is when you say, right... So, like, you say that, you know, if if you're doing exams... uh, I mean, I don't care about letters and all that stuff, but a lot of people do. To get the PhD after your name, you know, you're a doc, you're trained to be a doctor and you see a nameplate that says, you know, Dr. Dominic Frisbee, uh, MD, <laughs> you know, whatever. And yeah. that is a form of visualisation. Yeah. But then it's a question of, are you prepared to do the hard work to make that happen? Yeah. So Michael McIntyre, not only did he see it, yeah. he then worked out the steps he needed to take to get there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Right, we are running out of time, Alistair. This is very, very interesting. Let us talk about habits. This is something you mentioned in your final chapter and what Warren Buffett said about habits. Um, Should we talk about habits and the importance of habits to winning? Well, that that was the thing about about role models. He said that, you know, he was too set in his ways. But what he said was to a group of students... He was there at an event with Bill Gates. He got the two richest men in the world talking to some students in America. And he said that he was so ingrained in his own habits of how he did things, he couldn't change, which I suspect suspect he changes as much as he wants or needs to. But what he was saying to them is you can change who and what you are. And he said to these students... And, and it's something that I, I now use the whole time when I'm doing speeches or talking to schools or whatever, is basically just to write down the name of the pa- person in the world that you most admire and write down the person in the world you least admire. But then more importantly, write down their attributes. What is it you like about... What is it I like about Abraham Lincoln? Uh, forgiveness, resilience, wonderful speaker... Uh, beautiful writer, you can go through yeah. the you know, vision for the world, um, depressive. Um, and then write down the people you least admire. Mine is often Paul Dacre, the editor of the Daily Mail. <laughs> I was about to ask uh, you that question. And, and then, but then, and, and, and you can, so it's ridiculous of me to put myself, and I'm not, put, put yourself in the same bracket as a Lincoln or a Mandela, but you can look at their qualities and try to aspire towards them. Yeah. And in some cases, emulate them. And what he said, what Buffett said to these students was, do this today, write down those attributes now and make them habit-forming. And I, th- I thought that was a fantastic piece of advice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So 
the, 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 the habits that we came to, and by the way, it was, of all the people, I mean, what an array of people you interviewed for the book, from, you know, all the sports guys, Jose Mourinho and Floyd Mayweather and these kind of people to um, Richard Branson and businessmen, and then some really interesting, Anna Winter from the mm. World of Fashion, very mm. interesting lady, a, a real... That, that's a question, that actually, funny that she should spark that thing. How ruthless do you need to be? Because, I mean, so if you're winning, like some business is, success in politics mm. comes at somebody else's expense. Your, your party wins, the other party loses. Mm. The same thing to agree degree happens in sport. Mm. But in business, that's not necessarily the case because your success, you're bringing benefit, like, you know, uh, I buy your product, you receive my money, I get your product, and we both benefit. That's the kind of beauty of business. Yeah, but there's a competitor that you might be putting out of business because you adapted and innovated better than he or she did. Not unless you've invented something new. Oh. Well, OK, fair enough, because you came here in an Uber, your first Uber ride today. Yeah, which, yeah. yeah it wasn't great. <laughs> yeah, but it was great for me. I, a taxi from Hampstead to here cost me 12 quid. That's pretty good, yeah. And but I, th I think that um, Anna Winter was very interesting to me because... Um, I went to see her in in, uh, in New York, and I thought I was going to put her in the section on innovation. Okay. So there's me thinking comfort zone, conventional wisdom, it's all about fashion. And actually, as I talked to her, I realised that she's a leader. So just as I made Mourinho my main profile on strategy, she's my main profile on leadership. Mm. Not Angela Merkel or Bill Clinton or Tony Blair, but Anna Winter. And the reason. By for the that, way, I loved your analysis of Merkel, and I've never. I, ne I, I just think she's amazing having yeah. read your book. You realise how. What, what a formidable woman she that is. She is extraordinary, yeah, she is extraordinary. But Anna Winter is, is like. Uh, ruthless. Is she ruthless? I think. I think very, very successful people in sport. In, sorry, in business and politics have to be capable of being ruthless. And they can't was, suffer from. They can't have too much conscience, or guilt. No, I don't think you. I don't think those need necessarily. I, I I saw with Tony Blair, for example, as he got longer in the tooth in the job, he used to really, really, really agonise about sacking people, and as he went on late, I mean, he never found it easy. He didn't enjoy it, mm. but latterly, he definitely found it a bit easy because he got more used to it. Okay. Um, I felt with Anna Winter, she said, she said in the interview that, you know, we, we should all get sacked at some point. It's an incredibly important lesson. And she got sacked, and I think that is what put the steel in her. She is a very tough woman, I think. Um, but I don't think ruthless... As, I think as long as it's not cruelty, I think you have to... Because ruthless ultimately is about making very difficult decisions that ultimately are going to make you succeed in what it is that you're trying to do. And... I don't think we should see that as a bad thing unless it sort of stretches to cruelty, obviously to criminality, mm. um, and where you are operating according to a set of principles which people understand. So, for example, you know, a lot of these people are very, very hard taskmasters. As long as, it, as, long as you know you're working for a hard taskmaster, then I don't think there's anything terrible about being sacked because you don't work hard enough. So the attributes to, to, to be an incredible winner, we have part of a team, we have this um, objective strategy tactics, not about hard work, obviously. Absolutely. Be, be prepared to make sacrifices. 
uh, innovation. I'm summarising your kind of last few paragraphs. <laughs> be, be innovative. And the one thing we haven't talked about, is, well, we kind of, we'll talk about innovation very quickly and also it not being about the money. Yeah, well, that's, that's a big Branson quote in the book where he says that he's never gone into a business thinking it's going to make him rich. He's gone into a business idea thinking it's, it's, it's necessary, it's needed, people want it. I thought it was really interesting about him. His innovations are driven by often by a sense of personal frustration. So his first record stores, it was about, I love buying records. Why is it when you go into a record store, it's so boring? Let's make interesting record stores. Mm. When you go on an airplane, why is it so crap? Uh, let's have an airline that people look forward to sort of stepping onto the plane and it's an experience. Um, I think the... So in, in innovation, again, Arianna Huffington, who, you know, with a Huffington Post, is sort of... That's quite an innovation. Mm. And, and she, I thought she gave a very interesting definition of innovation. She said it's the mindset that says we're always unfinished business. Nothing's ever perfect. Nadia Comaneci, the, the gymnast, and I do tend to gravitate towards sport because yeah. I think the best analogies are often there. And she told me this wonderful story about when she got the perfect 10 at the Montreal Olympics, the first time ever that the judges had given 10 out of 10 for a performance. And she said her first instinct was to be happy and her second instinct was to say, no, they're wrong. Because I should have got 11. No, <laughs> it's impossible to get yeah. perfection. Because if you get perfection, you can't do any more. You yeah. have to stop. And I think that sort of sense of... I think what you get out of a lot of these people is people who... They don't always enjoy winning. I did a talk about the book the other day, and this, this woman, she sort of listened to me rabbiting over a while, and she said, I've read the book, and I've listened to you talk, and she said, they might be very successful, these people, but they don't always seem very happy. Mm. And I said, well, it's not a book about happiness, it's a book about winning. And they're not the same things. Mm. And I found the three... I'll resent this for the rest of my days, is that the three nights of the election wins, 97, 2001, 2005, I didn't enjoy them. Everybody else was having a great time, and I was miserable uh, because I was stressed, because I was worrying about the next day, because there was so much to yeah. do. I didn't enjoy it. And um, I think you find with, with Dave Brailsford, we haven't talked about Dave, but his sort of revolution of British cycling, and his team, will they're still angry, the fact that the, when they won the Tour de France, first ever British winner of the Tour de France, he said, you can't have a party because we've got the Olympics coming up. <laughs> <laughs> it's always about the next one. There's a definite hunger that you need. Alistair Campbell, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Once again, I say it is a terrific book and you should all read it. The book is called Winners and How They Succeed. It is published by... Penguin and Random House. Penguin and Random House. It is out in hardback. It is out in Kindle. And I think the paperback is on its way. I think it's out next year. And if you're in America, it's coming out hardback in uh, October. OK, great. And if people want to find out more about you, Alistair, or follow your work, should they go to your website yeah, or follow you on Twitter? AlistairCampbell.org. Or Twitter, Campbell Claret. Campbell Claret, at Campbell Which has Claret. got nothing to do with alcohol and everything to do with Burnley Football Club, <laughs> who are in the book more than Real Madrid. Are they? But less than Barcelona. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> very good. A statement in itself. Alistair Campbell, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you, ladies and gents, for listening to the show. We've got all sorts of brilliant guests coming up, so make sure you subscribe, either via iTunes, your RSS, or through virgin.com. 
And finally, visit virgin.com, the home of Virgin, and read Richard's blog, as well as all sorts of interesting stories and opinion pieces on travel, tech, music and entrepreneurship. That's virgin.com, the home of Virgin. I'm Dominic Frisby. Thanks for listening. Cheerio. The Virgin Podcast was presented and produced by Dominic Frisby, with special thanks to Nick Fox and to Jack Preston, Christian Anderson Ramshaw and Silk Sound.